think life can be very difficult for uh, women in, in a lot of job areas. I mean, people do behave stupidly quite often. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Murray Coleman, AO, is one of the best-known feminists in Australia. The first woman to head a Commonwealth statutory agency, she has campaigned for decades on issues such as affordable childcare, paid parental leave and the gender pay gap. Born in Dubbo, Mari has worked as a journalist, a medical social worker, a public servant and an academic. She's won numerous awards and worked on a variety of issues, including Indigenous reconciliation and incarceration. She founded the National Foundation for Australian Women, worked to establish the Australian Women's Archives Project and remains active in community organisations and public life in her retirement. Murray, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Happy to be here. You were an only child uh, born in the Depression and you moved a lot around rural and regional New South Wales, Singleton, Dubbo, Orange, Lithgow. How did you find that peripatetic growing up? Ah, uh, yes. Well, that, that uh, it was challenging. I went from uh, having, we lived up in the Hunter at one stage, that was when I used to have correspondence school lessons, so I, I wasn't, there wasn't a lot of company. Yeah. Uh, we moved to Michelago and I, the, the Michelago Primary School had 12 children, all, <laughs> up, all up when I got there. And then uh, after the Japanese strafed Sydney Harbour, um, I was sent along with the other treasured positions of the piano and the singer sewing machine, out to my grandmother in Dubbo. And I lobbed into a school which had 600 children and there were 60 children in my class. Wow. And I found it um, very challenging. (laughs) Um, When I wasn't, I was there for about a year or so before I was then moved to Orange. So... uh, it was a constant pattern of change. It was a constant pattern of uh, never really building up the sort of long-term friendships that some people have. I have mm. friends here in Canberra who were born in Canberra and went to Ainsley North Primary School. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, you have a different relationship with your peers when you're, when you're shifting the whole time. Do you prefer being around a lot of people or smaller groups? How extroverted are you? I don't think I'm particularly extroverted. <laughs> and is your, is your dad likewise? He, or was your, your dad? He was a porter in the railways. Well, he was when I was born. He, he, he gradually worked his way up through the rather arcane railway New South Wales Railways promotion system, and he was a train controller when he retired. Um, no, uh, I wouldn't say he was. Uh, he 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 was. He enjoyed his social life, but he was. He was very cautious, I think, about uh, uh, about inviting too many people into his private life. Hmm. <laughs> and 
your mother? Was she somebody you she was, regard as a feminist? Uh, well, my mother was, um, for her generation, an early businesswoman. Uh, she was a fashion buyer. She uh, became a company director with the company that she worked with as a fashion buyer. Mm. Um, and I think she was she was very active in um, mm, quota, one of the women's business women's organisations. Uh, she'd also been a pianist. She had a an all women's dance band at one stage in my life. Um, so I think she was always uh, a bit more outgoing than my father. Whether she would have called herself a feminist is something else again. Uh, but uh, to some extent, I think it's what you do rather than what you say. And she, in a period when very few married women were working, mm. she was working. You then went to University of Sydney and you seem to have thrown yourself into absolutely everything. Uh, you edited on Isoir, uh, so did I, but you edited the entire paper on your own. I had 11 other people editing it uh, when I was doing it in 1993. Um, debating, sport, you represented the university in district women's cricket, in diversity women's cricket. Um, you sound, read, look, look at that on paper, it looks like uh, you really threw yourself into all that Sydney University had to offer. Well, I did. I think yes. Um, I got involved in the in the student representative council and the government of Manning House because the women's union was separate then from from the Sydney University Union. Um, uh, the debating was slightly odd, but I think well, one of the things that happened to me when I that great trip from Michelago to Dubbo, I was called on to to speak to the class in Dubbo. And I had, I just froze. I couldn't utter a word. And I decided that I would, uh, and bear in mind I'm about nine at this stage, I decided that what I had to learn to do was to debate. Um, and um, so I had the opportunity to do that at, at, at uni and, and mm. it, it seemed, a, seemed a good idea at the time. <laughs> That's a wonderful reaction. I mean, a lot of kids would have seen that as scarring rather than being something that needed to be overcome. It was fairly scarring. <laughs> but you must have been a sort of uh, slightly stubborn teen to, uh, to then decide that you needed to, to become a debater, mm. having, having had that experience of freezing. Uh, were you, how influential was Sydney University in development of, of your uh, focus on, on women's issues? Oh... Not particularly. I don't think Sydney University in 1950 was very alert to women's issues. It was before Germaine Greer, you understand. Yes. Uh, the, um, no, I think it was, you know, it was more general political in issues at Sydney mm. at that time. It, uh, that's the period of the, the great split in the Labour Party and... Uh, the Sydney University Labour Club was all over the place and the Sydney University Liberal Club was all over the place. I think I was a member of both, come to think of it. No, uh, really? <laughs> not simultaneously. No, OK. <laughs> Which one came first? Uh, possibly the Liberal Club. Hmm. But there were some tedious young men in the Liberal Club. Or <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm sure all the men in the Labour Club were angelic. No, 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 but they were a bit more... Well, you see, there was also the heyday of um, 
John Anderson and and the uh, the, the Andersonians and, and yes. I've I drifted around on the edge of the Andersonians because mm. I majored in philosophy, right. philosophy and economics, which was regarded at the time by most people as bizarre. To do the two of them at the same time? Well, to even do them for a girl, yes. Mm. Were you the only woman in, woman in many of your classes? Uh, not the only woman, no. Uh, economics, I was in the same class as uh, Janet Coombs, Nugget's daughter, uh, which is how I met Nugget. Um, but there weren't, I mean, there were a handful of us in a class of about 100. It wasn't, mm. wasn't a big subject for girls. Philosophy, there were more women floating around. Um, but again, not huge. I mean, the number of women at university in 1951 52 was not vast. Indeed. Uh, I have to ask, what were your impressions of Nugget? Ah uh, well, I became a good friend of Nuggets um, in later years when I was here in Canberra. Uh, at the sta- at that stage, I was just gobsmacked by this person who was uh, he was I was a child studying economics, and and he was this person who was the head of the Commonwealth Bank, and uh, every so often I'd uh, Janet when I once I'd left Women's College, I was living at on the other side of the harbour, every so often Janet would come in to uni in the bank car and I would come in with her and every so often we'd go up and visit Nugget's office <laughs> in the bank and I'd see all these amazing paintings because he was collecting Aboriginal art as well yes. at that stage. Um, I think I was just totally in awe of him at that stage and got to know him better in later years. Yeah. Mm. And... Then you moved to London. What, what, what took you to London initially? Ah, oh, well, again, you see, uh, if one could shake off the dust of Australia from one's shoes in 1954, one did. Uh, now, most of my cohort who were going to London, uh, going to England, went to England and they went to watch the tennis and they went skiing at Kitzbühel. Um, I was more contrary. I went to the United States first and drifted through the USA Mm. um, and then flew from New York to London. Strange, yes. But anyway, um, but, you know, everybody ended up in in London. Um, I never, ever lived in Earl's Court, but I have to say I once went to the Down Under Club and, and... watched a person called Rolf Harrison, decided I didn't like him very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, to your credit, as, uh, as history would have it. Well, as it turns out, yes. <laughs> uh, and you worked for the Royal Empire Society as a, as a publicist. What got yes, you well, that was... It? Well, when I left... Uni- after I'd um, finished my arts degree, um, I decided to drop out of university for a year... In retrospect, I can't remember why I decided to do that, but but mm. but I did, um, and um, I was looking for a job that was even remotely. At that stage, I was determined I was going to work in newspapers. Yes, I'd had been offered a job for a while by uh, Mickey McNichol, who was the women's page editor of the Telly, um, and I worked for her for a couple of months, but then that turned out not to turn into an ongoing job. 
and this job at the Royal Empire Society came up, so I applied for it and, and got it. Mm. It was very odd. And then you were a teacher as well. Oh, well, that was when I was in London. Yes. Uh, and uh, at that stage where the, the, uh, the UK... Well, it was still the London County Council at that stage, and they were desperate for teachers, and although they hardly needed somebody with a double in, in economics and philosophy, um, I was a warm body who could entertain children. Um, and uh, so I, I did relief teaching with the LCC for a year or so. Mm. And then you met your husband, James? Yes, moved, yes. Uh, well, I'd, I'd met him by the time I'd started the teaching, yes. But then we married and uh, he was from Melbourne and we came, we came back to Australia, to Melbourne. Uh, and you, uh, that, uh, that dream of journalism uh, seems to have taken off with working as a scriptwriter for the ABC. What well, yes, although that's scarcely daily journalism. But, but uh, I did scriptwriting for the, and what used to be called talks with the, for the ABC and schools broadcast scripts and things of that kind. Well, that worked very well with, with have portable typewriter, will travel. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I had a, a very young family, you know, so I could do a lot of that uh, with the children, preferably when they're asleep, um, and um, it sort of kept me in touch with something other than nappies. And raising three children while uh, while being a scriptwriter is uh, is no mean feat. Ah, uh, oh, well, the scriptwriter was scriptwriter was sort of in in between times, you understand. Yes, yes. Still, there's there's not many in between times with uh, with, with three uh, three kids. No. So, uh, and you you've worked. I mean, I'm just. In awe of the diversity of the the things you did, you worked then as a medical social worker at. Uh well, yes, I I had managed to fit in the course, uh, the qualification as a social worker, uh, and it became obvious to me that that uh, there was no way I was going to get back into journalism um, with small children and um, a variety of family situations. Um, but there was also a gross shortage of social workers at that time. Uh, so um, somebody I knew suggested I should apply. In the first instance, I applied to what used to be called the repatriation department, uh, but bumped into the marriage bar. Um, and then was, I was pointed in the direction of one of the, uh, uh, one of the public hospitals in Melbourne, which was... In, in need of a social worker, so I went to work there. So was the marriage bar across the public service or was it a bit ad hoc? No, the marriage bar was right where it's the, the Commonwealth Public Service. Right. At that right. stage, if you were married, you could not have a permanent position. Right. Uh, you shake your head. <laughs> uh, the, uh, and then you, you worked for Asthma Foundation in Victoria and then on to um, become director of the Victorian Council of Social Service. That's a, it's an impressively speedy rise. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I think, I mean, I've told the story before that I, the kinds of problems I was encountering at the hospital may turned me into being extremely interested in social policy. Mm. I know we didn't want to talk about policy, but that, but that's where I, I, I turned to that because I, I was so shocked by what was happening with um, 
people's inability to finance their hospital care because this was, mm. you know, mm. uh, I was up terribly upset by uh, things that were happening with single women who were having children and so forth. And I became very interested in that area of, of, uh, of policy. And although I was headhunted for the, um, for the Asthma Foundation job, I was doing a lot of work while I was there with VCOS committees mm. and then I was headhunted to go leave the Asthma Foundation and go and run VCOS where we were on about policy. Yes, yes. Uh, and then you, uh, you went there terribly long before a bloke called Gough Whitlam asked you to head the newly created Social Welfare Commission. Yes, well I suppose... How did that happen? Well, <coughs> we had... Uh, been working, as I said, on stuff to do with health insurance or the lack thereof, mm. and had were running quite a campaign about it, uh, almost simultaneously with uh, some friends at the university introduced me to um, uh, Big Scotton and John Deeble, who were just finishing their doctorates uh, with um, Ron Henderson. And um, so we ran a campaign about the need for changes in health insurance at the same time that John and Dick launched Here's Another Way of Doing It, what came to be known as Medibank. Yes. And I think that certainly brought me to a degree of national political attention. Mm. Um, and as would the campaign we ran on, on childcare, uh, which brought me to the attention of a chap called Billy Mackey Snedden, who was... <laughs> the Minister for Labour and National Service at the time. Um, to the negative attention of uh, Billy Snedden? No, no, no. Oh. Mi Bill, uh, Mr Snedden was very delighted because he was locked in a battle with the Minister for Health and the Minister for Education uh, over the proposition that if there was to be a government role, federal government role in childcare, who would own it? Hmm. Um, and uh, we had just produced a small report... Uh, which uh, uh, one of the people I knew who was the head of the Women's Bureau in his department said that um, she would like to take me to Mr Snedden's office who wanted to have talked to me about this report. Mm. Um, he said, um, why didn't I distribute it more widely? And I said, we didn't have any money. And he said, well, that's all right. I'll get it printed for you. Oh. And, and uh, I became thus aware of, of, of the interesting debates taking place inside the Commonwealth Cabinet at that time. Yes, yes. This seems an interesting mirror of your having joined the Labour and the Liberal clubs at university, <laughs> that you were engaging constructively both with... I uh, believe firmly in engaging in the most pragmatic way one can yes. in order to achieve a desired outcome, yeah. which is a more positive thing than saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Absolutely. <laughs> what was it like to head the Social Welfare Commission? I think it was almost as much of a shock for me as it was for the Commonwealth Public Service. <laughs> um, I mean, bear in mind, I, I was 40 years old. I had never worked in the public service. Uh, I literally had not the faintest idea of the gradations of power and influence. And all of a sudden... I was heading a statutory agency, as if I really understood what that meant, um, and I was the first woman 
in Australia to ever have that kind of power and influence, so to speak. And a married woman at that. And a married couldn't have gone much, uh, disappeared much before. It had hardly disappeared. Yes. So, um, mm, yeah. I mean, it, it was it was extraordinary uh, working. In the uh, in that administration was extraordinary because uh, there's no question that Mr. Whitlam was a great believer in in competitive advice. One piece piece of advice from one person wasn't as good as having advice on the same topic from at least three or four other people. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so that the, the 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 policy advising process was 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 very competitive, um, and sometimes and the other thing was that. I did not know enough to know that uh, the chairman of a statutory authority actually isn't supposed to personally and publicly disagree with the Prime Minister. Are there thing, pieces of advice that you learned from that experience that would be valuable for others going into firsts? You know, somebody who's the first transgender person to occupy a role or the first Chinese-Australian to occupy a role. What what did you take away from that as a kind of broader lesson? It's a broader lesson. Um, I think it's really important to get people who will be able to give you sympathetic but not um, not distorted advice uh, to understand the milieu that you're working in. That's mm. that's critical. Um, there was a lot of uh, hostility, even in the uh, areas you wouldn't have expected, to the fact, for example, that the commission, not the commissioners, who were about 50-50 male and female, but also that, in fact, the staff of the commission was about 50-50 male and female. Mm. There were a lot of people who took that as a, as a subject to be quite offended by. Um, which baffled me. <laughs> I couldn't imagine why anybody would be baffled by, by be offended by that, but people were. Um, I, I, I think it is a question of, of getting a good grip on the environment in which you're working, um, not being afraid to do the things that you think are proper, but preferably being able to develop networks which will provide support when mm. you when you need it in the inevitable disputes that are going to go on in the jostling for primacy that takes place in the policy environment. Did you did you have key mentors in that period? Who, no. Right. But who? But who? Then who were those supports? Support networks. Ah, uh, well, initially I didn't actually have any. That that was that was the dilemma. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, it, all of the other heads of the Whitlam policy commissions um, were either people like Peter Carmel, who'd been around the traps, or Sid Sachs, who'd come in from a very senior position in New South Wales Health, or in some cases they were uh, people who were already in the Commonwealth Public Service and who were put into those positions. So it was not only that I was the only female and, and young, but also that I was from totally outside the system. Um, and that was strange. Yes. 
then came the dismissal and many of those in the uh, Whitlam government left uh, the public service. You, yes. you stayed on though. Uh, yes, well, you've already uh, reflected on the fact that I had working relations with people from uh, the Liberal Party as well as the Labor Party mm. and I had quite good working relations uh, prior to being translated to Canberra um, with um, Senator Dame Ivy Wedgwood and her young uh, person who was whom she was mentoring, uh, Margaret Guilfoyle. Um, and I, so I was quite friendly with, with Margaret mm. um, in the Melbourne scene, uh, where after all I'd been working with the state, with the Balti government, which is, yes. just let me tell you something. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, could have been, been the Askin government. <laughs> well, in its own way. <laughs> but so uh, Margaret uh, quickly stepped in and uh, offered me a position running childcare. Running the office of childcare. Running the you're, office. If you're making you're making it sound, sound uh, smaller than it is, it's uh... um, so uh, it was that was Margaret's intervention, mm. um, just as it was Margaret's intervention that uh, made sure that um, I was actually given uh, an opportunity to join the Commonwealth Super Scheme because right. that had been that was the subject of some some dispute um, uh, but that was that was quite a process because uh, I had to line up to be um, uh, it was lined up that that uh, I would be waiting in Margaret's office with a copy of my resignation letter to the Governor-General, uh, unsigned at that point, until uh, the Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, uh, made the announcement to Parliament mm. that uh, uh, he was going to abolish the Social Welfare Commission and that I would be appointed to head the new Office of Child Care and as soon as that was heard over the broadcast in the minister's office, I signed the letter. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you had some pretty impressive achievements over that period, in particular getting childcare institutionally uh, part of women's refuges, which yes. you, must, you must have been extraordinarily proud of. It's a very, such an important achievement. Well, I was very pleased with that, and that was a bit of a Margaret Guilfoyle sleight of hand as well. Mm. Uh, she was quite... Margaret would do all sorts of quite interesting things, but do them in such a way that, that nobody had the idea that she'd been so outrageous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she rather enjoyed it, I think. Um, but on that occasion, yes... Um, the, uh, there'd been a deputation of um, uh, the women from the Melbourne refugees in Canberra and uh, they'd... Um, I think some of them might have been one of the pubs in Kingston drinking a bit that night. But anyway, <laughs> putting that to one side, I got a phone call at home about um, 10 o'clock, I suppose, uh, from... Uh, Margaret's um, not a principal private secretary, but the next one down, mm. to say that um, the minister had invited the women from the refuges to be in parliament at nine o'clock the following morning, 
and the minister would very much appreciate it if I could meet her at half past eight with a proposal to put money into childcare at the mm. women's refuges. So I roused one of my staff out of bed and said something like, can we, what kind of money have we got? <laughs> and we um, quickly calculated how much uncommitted funds we had um, and divided that by the number of refugees, which is very scientific. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, then we quickly knocked together a minute for the minister which um, my poor staffer had to get typed up and bring in. And uh, so we got that to the minister's office and she signed it. And then we went down and here were all the women looking a tad the worse for wear. And, <laughs> and there were children revving around. So um, Margaret took charge and said, uh, we'll have to have milk and biscuits for the children and we'll have to get some paper. And so she sent all these messages out. Um, and then um, she called the meeting to attention and then she and she said, um, it's very pleasant to see you all here this morning and now I have to go and Mrs Coleman will look after you. <laughs> 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 Which was not what I had been expecting. But anyway, there we were. Yes. Uh, <laughs> was that the one, one of the proudest moments of uh, of, of your uh, Commonwealth public service career until oh, to that, that point? To no, I, I, we, we'd had a few wins. You know, we'd managed to persuade Goff over the dead bodies, so to speak, of some of the New South Wales right, uh, that he really should bring in the pension for single mothers, which I thought was a, a major achievement yes, at is. that time so so that that was uh, that was very good um, uh, probably that you know that probably gave me a bigger you know sense of gratification yes. than, than than some of the other things um, and of course we'd already had the um, the huge battle inside cabinet again going back to Billy Sneddon as to who was going to own childcare, mm. um, and uh, Goff had had me brought over to the uh, to the lodge on a dark and stormy day, so to speak. In uh, must have been early '74, uh, to say that um, he wasn't going to accept uh, the Fry report on preschool education, and uh, he wanted an alternate. And we delivered a proposal to him. Mm just as the 74 election was called, in fact. Um, and then uh, af even after that, there was this still a battle went on within between education, labour and national service, except that it, I think it had changed its name by then, health mm. and social services as to who was, uh, was social security it was then, as to who was going to own childcare. Mm. I mean, the same battle which had been raging 20, for 20 years as to who was going to own childcare. And that was how it came about that the uh, interim committee for the Children's Commission was established within PM&C because... <laughs> so PM&C ultimately won the battle to own childcare? Well, PM&C took it because they couldn't settle anyone else. Yes. They couldn't okay. settle the, the competition. And it was... Margaret was initially, when Fraser came in, Margaret 
was assigned responsibility mm. and they decided to abolish the children interim committee for the children's commission yes. Yes. And, and turn it into the office for childcare. So you then uh, took a, accepted an invitation from the government of South Australia in 1983 to review their early childhood services. How long were you in South Australia? I, I wasn't over there permanently. I went across um, for two or three days a week hmm. for about oh, six months, I suppose, to do that report. That had, they had a problem in South Australia um, which the Bannon government had been unable to resolve and they two or three times had a review which had been um, overturned by the political manoeuvrings of the Kindergarten Union of South Australia, which was a one-time charitable philanthropic organisation which had been given all of the Whitlam preschool money Right. and was suddenly a statutory authority without any of the normal statutory authority things wrapped around it. Um, and this, the Bannon government wanted to look both at the structure of, of early childhood education generally as well mm. as where childcare was fitting in. So that, that was my job, was to try to come up with a workable solution um, and give them a model which would fly politically. Yes. Did you manage to solve the problem? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> and then you went on to help found the National Foundation for Australian Women. Now, why, why do we need that organisation? Uh, I think by the middle of the 80s, um, I think there was a lot of discussion about uh, going around about had the women's movement fizzled out? What, mm. you know, where was it all? Uh, uh, and my own view is, is that many of the women who'd been extremely dynamic in that second wave women's movement by the middle of the 80s were actually terribly busy running community preschools, community childcare centres, uh, women's refuges, women's health centres and various mm. other things and that was where their energies were going. Uh, but there seemed to be a feeling around that we needed a body which would, would be not about service provision but would be capable of looking at, at policy issues. And I was very much encouraged in that by uh, a range of people ranging from uh, my friend Wendy Phaeton who was, mm. well shortly after that she became the minister assisting the Prime Minister for Women. Um, but there were other people who were encouraging the idea of trying to do something to, to uh, reconfigure women's, or w w yeah, women's policy rather than women's services. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think it's, uh, it's performed in the time since you, you set, set it up? Has well, it achieved it, what you'd hoped? Well, yes, and like any organisation, it's had its ups and downs. Uh, indeed, we've uh, just been looking at some documentation that we could... The current directors uh, are, are organising to celebrate 30 years uh, in June mm. this year since the foundation was established. Um, and I think we have been, um, in terms of policy bearing on women, we've been able to be very effective and probably punched well and truly above our weight, as the saying goes. Mm. Um, but, you know, we played quite a part, as you might know, um, in organising to get uh, 
what was then called maternity leave, but now it's called paid parental leave, back onto mm. the agenda when it had dropped off both Labor policy and Liberal policy. Yes. Um, and we got that to a point where Jenny Macklin was able to pick it up and carry the ball through and succeed in getting the program going. Um, we did, uh, and you know, we gave evidence to the Productivity Commission inquiry. We, we uh, ran workshops around the country uh, with the support of the Productivity Commission, talking about the interim report mm. uh, uh, to try to stimulate discussion and get more suggestions coming in. So, you know, that, that was a pretty big deal. Mm. When you are, when Australians are asked if they're feminists, only eighteen uh, percent of women and ten percent of men say that, say they self-identify as feminists. Um, why are we in such a minority, and what do we do about that? Well, yes, I suppose it's large, pass, partially because a lot of people have uh, preconceptions about what what or who feminists might be. And so they become rather perturbed about associating themselves. I mean, the, the way in which somebody like Julie Bishop, who, uh, on a, no matter what one might think from time to time about Julie's personal politics, uh, she did a lot to advance women, mm. both in the party and in, in the parliament. And she was very strong on... Uh, looking at, even as the government was reducing the aid budget, she was very strong on focusing the aid budget on, on advancement of women in, in the Pacific region. Um, one could well say that everything she did suggested that she had a very strong view, which was equivalent to feminism, but she was never prepared to uh, say that she was. And maybe you can't get elected in Western Australia as a Liberal minister if you say you're a feminist. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know the answer to your question. Uh, where do you stand on this question of uh, difference feminism versus social conditioning feminists? Do you think of women as having unique qualities or is there being sort of no inherent physiological differences between the sexes and the differences that we observe are, are ones that come from the way in which we socially condition boys and girls? Well, I think socially, social conditioning is extremely important and it's often very sort of culturally bound as well, depending on, on you know, which particular culture you've grown up in. I've met uh, um, Muslim women from some uh, Muslim communities are very strong feminists, but they, they also have a lot of views that I don't necessarily find myself comfortable with. Um, so I don't try, I try not to get too theological. Uh, <laughs> my view is, are we looking at things which will advance women's capacity to be self-managing? Uh, and give them the opportunity to participate in society. Those are the things that I'm interested in trying to support. Um, I'm interested to try to make sure that girls have the opportunity to go through whatever level of education they want to. Now, obviously, since I've got two little great-grandsons, I would expect that they too would have opportunities for advancement. I don't think they'll have much opportunity not to be feminists, but, but putting that to one side... Um, I think one's talking about decent opportunities for advancement where people aren't 
living lives which are too prescribed by their gender or, for that matter, by their social class. But there's a sort of tension, isn't there, between uh, the arguments that say we need more women, for example, on corporate boards because women have these qualities of being nurturing and caring uh, and the perspective that says, no, actually, uh, women uh, have... have all the same, all the same qualities as men, and the reason we need women on corporate boards is simply because you shouldn't be discriminated against because you have two X chromosomes. Well, uh, I think we've had demonstrations in recent years that women on corporate boards can make really poor decisions just as well as blokes can. <laughs> Um, and I don't think it's about caring and sharing, frankly. Uh, I think there is data to suggest that, that corporate bodies which have more women on their boards tend to have, tend, that's very hedging, better policies concerning the progress of women through promotion within the ranks of those companies. I think they're probably more sensitive to those sorts of issues. Uh, but I don't think it's a reasonable proposition to su suspect that's about caring and sharing. I think that's possibly about a recognition that uh, in diversity lies strength or something of that kind. Mm. What do you make of fourth wave feminism, the, uh, the Me Too movement and the like? Well, I think it's appalling that people have been subjected to that level of, of um, sexual harassment in the job situation. If that's the best way that people can, can find to fight back, then, then that's an appropriate way. It's, it wouldn't have been my way, but that's, that's beside the point. Um, I, uh, I've just, I'm appalled by the stories that one hears. Um, and I think life can be very difficult for uh, women in, in a lot of job areas. I mean, people do behave stupidly quite often, both men and women. I mean, I, I, I'm conscious, for example, that, that one of my daughter's school friends, a bloke, was sexually harassed by his female boss, uh, which is pretty offensive too. Um, but these are things that have to be, these are battles that have to be fought out in the workforce and, and people have to do what they can to stop inappropriate behaviour. Mm. Yes, and I'm sort of quite interested in some of the economic research which mm. seems to suggest that um, sexual harassment may play quite a significant role in, in shaping the gender pay gap, mm. uh, particularly in occupations where um, after hours socialising and networking yep. are important to career advancement. Well, you've um, got to ask yourself why that gender pay gap is so evident in graduates in the, just those first few years after yes. graduation, uh, before the women are theoretically taking time out for caring responsibilities. Something is happening, um, and I do think uh, that in environments where everything is dependent on bonuses and special management, special treatment, mm. it's mm. very, very hard indeed to know just whether people are being treated even-handedly, and the su suggestion is that they're not. Mm. Now, you've, uh, you retired from the Australian Public Service in uh, 1995. Uh, 20 93. 93, 93 okay. Yes. So uh, 20, 26 years, years ago. And you've done a remarkable number of, uh, of things in that period. You're uh, a columnist in the Can Canberra Times, 
Uh, you've worked in Cape York communities through an Indigenous Social Development Institute. Uh, you were uh, awarded an, an Edna. Uh, you've served on the advisory board of the Hindmarsh Education Centre, the Quamby Youth Detention Centre and the ACT. Uh, you're ACT Senior Australian of the Year. Um, what does it mean to have a good retirement and, and how have you managed such a, uh, such a wonderful plethora of, uh, of, of activities in your retirement? Oh. Well, look, I think what I found was that once I took a package, um, lots of people came up and said, We'd, it'd be a really good idea if you came and did something with us. So that after about the first 12 months, it was necessary to... Uh, take stock and work out what I was actually doing mm. and what I couldn't possibly do and have a clear conscience about being involved with. But a lot of things I've just been invited to do. I mean, when Quamby was still in existence, the um, um, for some reason that I, I can't remember, the ACT government switched management of Quamby from youth justice into education at the time and um, there was uh, I received an invitation to go along to a meeting to set up a committee to advise on the education programs at Quamby and the next thing I knew I was chairing the damn thing um, <laughs> But uh, it seems to happen to you a lot, reading your essay. <laughs> uh, and and I mean that was that was a really interesting ex experience because mm. I I was appalled at the lack of attention then to any kind of education and mm. vocational training for those children in that setting because some of them are going to be there for years. Um, there weren't enough chairs and desks in the education centre for the children to be all sitting down in classes, wow. which was outrageous. Yes. And the resources which were there to support the couple of teachers were just grossly inadequate. Now, that had to be dealt with. And I think one of the things that gave me great pleasure during that time I was working there was the, uh, the fact that we actually were able to get a situation going where a couple of the young men actually got to the stage of going out to do, out, out of the building, the grounds, to go and do um, their uh, high school certificate. Now, I don't know what's happened to those young men since then, but, but to get a couple of those kids through to that, yes. I thought was tremendous, rather than having them sitting around twiddling their thumbs and planning the next burglary. Absolutely. Do you have any advice for uh, young people seeking to replicate such a, an extraordinarily diverse and interesting career as yours, while, of course, raising a, 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 terrific, a terrific family? Uh, looking back, what are the, what are the sort of th things you think others might learn from? Look, I, I think I just happened to be around when interesting things were happening, and I took the opportunity to be involved in those interesting things. <laughs> what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, goodness, that's a long time ago. Um, 
Well, I was, a, I was both very, very, believe it or not, very shy, um, but at the same time trying to give the impression that I wasn't. Um, and I think I, I guess all teens go through that stage of wondering just who they are and, and, and where they're going to. I think it's just, just keep on keeping on and um, don't give up. <laughs> fundamentally it even in the face of difficult circumstances I'm still scarred by the fact that I used to have to run in school race carnivals against a woman called Marjorie Jackson <laughs> <laughs> you might want to tell some of the younger listeners just who was Marjorie <laughs> uh, so she was a brilliant runner but I'm struggling to remember her distance was she a 400 metre runner? No, 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 no. Her, her her real race was what one hundred meters, but right, right. so she was. Um, she quickly became a one of our great Olympians. Yes, and uh, people would tend to say, "I see you're doing well in the next race, Mari." <laughs> it's no great harm to be beaten by by Marjorie Jackson. I was, um, remember being very proud as a youngster in. Uh, uh, beating Duncan Armstrong in a, uh, in a, bi- in a biathlon. Uh, Duncan had just returned from the Olympics. It turned out that he was a fabulous swimmer, uh, but such a terrible runner that, uh, <laughs> that, that, that when you added the two events together, right, I was able yes. to, uh, to make it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? Mm. That's, that, that's, that's quite challenging to... Uh, come up with a simple answer to that I think I have probably grown in my degree of scepticism mm-hmm. about many things uh, so perhaps turning that around I may have been prone to take people at face value more than I mm. necessarily would do now it's not quite an answer to your question but it's a life learning yes when are you most happy? Oh, I'm reasonably happy a lot of the time. It's, it's I, I mean, I have moments of deep despair when I read the morning papers or Twitter or something. But, but uh, right. that's so when you're not reading Twitter is when you're most happy. <laughs> um, oh, look, you know, a lot of that is just very domestic. It's, it's. Um, I, I was very pleased the other day because one of my um, little grandsons, great-grandsons, has just been diagnosed with some serious allergies and it's become my role to uh, find a way of making bread that he can eat. Mm. And I have had more failures with gluten-free flour than you could begin to imagine. And I finally got a loaf the other day and gave it to his mother and he actually, he, my phone rang, I was sitting out in the garden with a glass of wine about five o'clock in the afternoon and there was this little voice saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, and wow. that was lovely. And then his mother came on and said that they'd been sitting, they'd been sitting down and he was, he'd been having some toast and Vegemite and he had said that, uh, he said, according to her, I'm very lucky to have a Gigi who makes bread for me. <laughs> so that made me very happy. I can imagine. What's the mo- most important thing you do to stay emotionally and physically healthy? 
Well, I, I physically, look, you get to my age, Andrew, and, and there's a great deal of maintenance. Uh, and I'm blessed with a very good GP who coordinates all of the things that needs to be coordinated. Uh, I take myself off regularly to Tai Chi lessons to help maintain some degree of physical um, balance. Mm. Um, I can't garden as much as I like to because I'm not as stable in the garden. Mm. This is a good thing. Um, I enjoy good food. I enjoy good company. Glass of wine or two. Yeah, these things are all part of a good life. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Every so often I sneak a bit of chocolate. <laughs> and finally, uh, what person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? That's hard to know. I think I... We've already canvassed the fact that I'm, I moved around a great deal as a child because of my father's work. Um, curiously, I was always sent off from the time I was four to, by train, to the nearest, mostly by train, to the nearest convent to, we're not Catholic, to be taught piano and elocution. Uh, and I think I imbibed a lot from those nuns, looking back on it, about social justice, you know, mm. which is a, was a very Catholic teaching. So how long were you with them? Uh... Well, when we lived up at up in the Hunter, I used to go into Musselbrook once a week by train, and I would be there from the morning until the afternoon. Um, when we lived in Michelago, I not only went down to Cooma once a week and spent the day in the convent, uh, but in the week or so before major music exams, I would go down and stay for a week or two to make sure that everything was up to scratch. Was the social justice teaching explicit or was it simply that you you got, got it by osmosis? I, I think osmosis as much as anything else. Oh. <laughs> well, Murray Common, uh, feminist, writer, uh, change maker and uh, GG extraordinaire. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Good Life podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.